The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Hello and welcome to the Wednesday's episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Well, today we're going to be talking about the final leg of our trip from Ukraine when the two of us and also our producer, James, reflect on our trip from the Polish city of Krakow. Well, here we are on what the soldiers would call, wouldn't they? So, uh, index, end of exercise where you're meant to sit around and mull over what it is you've learned from what you've just been through. Well, we've chosen a very good place for it, the main square, historic square of the very historic Krakow. Uh, we're sitting at a nice cafe terrace, having a few beers and waiting for our food to arrive. But we've earned this, haven't we, big time? We really have, because um, we'll get on to the purpose of the trip and our impressions of it in a minute, but we... We really need to mention the ordeal we've gone through today. I mean, we left Kiev at about, uh, well, shortly before midnight last night on an overnight to Lviv, thinking we'll move relatively seamlessly onto a bus and we'll be here early afternoon, ready to just relax, decompress, have a chat, nice meal. But in reality, we were held up for six hours in suffocating heat at the border. Um, and I have to say, Patrick, James and I were looking out thinking, is there any genuine reason for holding us up this long? We couldn't imagine that there was. James, what was your feeling about today? It was rough, wasn't it? <laughs> it was certainly a very arduous journey. But apart from that, the rest of the trip was a fantastic experience, I have to say. Also, it was just uh, very strange. On the buses going in and out of Ukraine, you notice that all of the passengers are mostly, I mean, apart from us, it's all Ukrainians on the bus. All of them are women and kids or men over 60. And my only chunk of light at the end of the journey was uh, seeing Ukrainian families reunited here in Krakow. And I thought, <laughs> the only positive <laughs> I could find in this journey. Yeah, well, I think we're just going to go through chronologically. We haven't been here a huge amount of time. We packed a hell of a lot in. And our arrival in Lviv last Tuesday now seems a very long time ago. But I think we got an instant kind of sense of what the place was like, didn't we, that evening, Saul? I mean, we started... It was quite dramatic on arrival. There were, as soon as we got off the bus, the air raid sirens started and everyone was tremendously blasé about it. So we, we weren't too worried about that. We spent a great evening in, uh, again, in, in some lovely old cobbled street, uh, sitting out there in the warm summer evening, chatting and renewing old acquaintances and friendships. But I think from that moment, we started feeling the spirit of the place, didn't we? So without feeling, being too kind of romantic about it, you got this sense of purpose, this sense of, of commitment to the whole idea of Ukraine. And it is a good idea. You've got this real feeling of, it does sound a bit sort of Hollywoodish, but there is a kind of sense of freedom in the air, isn't there? Freedom and, uh, and, and a sense of a crusade as well. And something we heard constantly all the way through when we were asking people about their motivations and why they are so determined to hang on. They said, well, you know, this is our future. This is what we want. And we know what the alternative is like from having uh, seen things like the massacre at Butcher, which is something we'll come on to later on. Um, but yeah, all in all, I was terrifically impressed by the 
Ukrainians we came across and by the kind of spirit that was in the air. And it, it was, a, in a way, it was a bit of a relief because we have been saying these things without first-hand knowledge. And it was nice to have your, your instincts and the, you know, the research that you've done on the thing actually being confirmed by the collision with reality, which, as uh, all soldiers know, is, uh, is where your battle plan starts going awry. I mean, the great thing about the trip was the variety of people we spoke to. So we met up, as Patrick says, with some old friends in our first night in Lviv, which was really an astonishing evening, actually. I mean, we were all kind of slightly hyped up about being in Ukraine. Finally, we had the air raid siren as soon as we arrived and also as soon as we went to bed. And the funny thing about those two air raid sirens is that actually Lviv doesn't get that many. It might have done in months gone by, but, you know, we've been keeping a track of the air raid sirens on Telegram. There are some very useful social media accounts that can tell you when and where and how these attacks are going to happen. Some incredibly detailed on signal, actually. But in any case, we, it's given us a very kind of clear idea that we were quite unlucky in a way, or lucky, depending on whether you want a bit of drama uh, in your life, to have had those two air raid sirens on the first night. But getting back to the broader point, which is the variety of people. So on the first night, we had Joe Lindsley, who's of course, a friend of the podcast, American, uh, moved here for reasons in which he explained in more detail when we spent a long evening with him in Kiev. But the point about Joe is that he is an outside perspective and then a slightly more local perspective we got from our friend Askold that evening, who, of course, is Ukrainian heritage, although he hasn't always lived in Ukraine. James, what was your early feeling about the trip? Well, the thing that struck me initially was the normality of the situation. It's not a normal situation, but it's just how uh, everyday life in war for them is, is completely normal. It didn't it didn't phase them the airway sirens. It was just people just kept on going about their daily life. You know, young parents pushing their kids in prams. Nobody. I mean, we looked around as soon as the first siren went off, and nobody moved at all. Nobody reacted at all. It, it sort of, that that struck me. I thought I thought some people would be. At least some people would be reacting to it, but no, not at all. And I thought that was uh, that was quite striking for me. And yeah, it's just the normality of the country at war. It's it's obviously it's not a normal situation for the country to be in, but for them now it is normal. It is their daily life. That's that's what it is. Yeah, I, got, I totally agree with you, James. And I think I got the sense that there was a sort of a positive decision that had been made collectively to create uh, that atmosphere of normality if you like i mean something that struck me was how few men of fighting age you saw in uniform uh, on the streets you'd imagine with guys coming back on leave or whatever to well this is particularly in kiev i thought there must have been loads of the males we saw in kiev they're walking around just like you know 20 or 30 year old guys in any european city in the same kind of clothes looking exactly the same and their demeanor is exactly the same and I, I, it seemed to me, and I tried to get an answer to this question, is this something that, you know, a signal has been sent out by the government saying, look, we don't want to make everyone feel they're in this constant state of war, so when you're back, uh, don't, don't put on your uniforms or any, or whether that's a decision they'd taken off their own bat. But it certainly, you could be in Kiev and think that there was absolutely nothing amiss uh, there at all, that this is a happy, prosperous society looking to the future, which is, of course, it's very much the impression that, well, it's what people feel, but certainly that is the impression that is given. Well, we got an interesting insight into this from Taras, who was our fixer, and we'll uh, come back to him in a moment, uh, born in Butcher, which of course says it all. 
But he made the point that actually what people are doing is they're calculating risk. And when you've been exposed to danger for a considerable period of time, you get quite canny at it. And I, of course, said to him, well, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the Second World War. I, I bet you people did exactly the same thing in London, even in the East End of London, which was subjected to a number of bombing raids. So anyway, with that in mind, on Friday morning, we head to Independence Square. and We're sitting there chatting and talking in these very same terms about risk and about the fact that everyone's kind of just living and and about the fact that every time an air raid siren goes on no one reacts to it and then lo and behold the air raid siren goes on uh so what happens next we do absolutely nothing and then bingo boom boom these two huge explosions and that was the first time we saw reaction on the street and in fact the last time in the uh six days we were in ukraine everyone moving purposefully but not panicking to the shelters and we followed with them just i just want to drop in something there about the journey from lviv to kiev so we got on this uh, train which was probably about 50 or 60 years old but despite the fact that everywhere you see these signs of you know very modern society brilliant restaurants brilliant bars everyone looking sort of prosperous and and very much in the kind of you know spirit of the times uh, you get into this train, you're plunged back into a, a kind of monochrome era, a very much kind of Soviet vibe to the whole thing. So the rolling stock was pretty, it, must, it was pretty ropey, wasn't it? The train was a day train. It was actually a sleeper. You had to sit in this sort of sleeper compartment with the bunks down. And two, I have to say, rather stout ladies were already in there, were not terribly delighted to see us get on. But more amusing to me was that the train was run entirely, the, the actual business of the train was run by these ladies in uniform. Anyway, these ladies certainly had that to be a very, very tough, the first one, wasn't she? No nonsense at all. And uh, it was it slightly amused me because my wife is currently doing a, uh, a project, a development project, where her bank is putting money into Ukraine. And one of the things that she's looking at is uh, to make sure that women are properly represented in positions of authority and uh, I, I will be able to report to her that this is indeed already the case but it may have been the case for some time. Okay so we move on to the rest of that day and uh, it was one man down actually I mean Patrick wasn't feeling great in the afternoon so uh, the rest of us James and I soldiered on and went to do our first appointment that day which was to go and see another old friend of the podcast uh, and if you've listened to the interview with him already, you'll know that he brought me up on the pronunciation of his name. It is Hazan and not Kazan. And that's the colonel who is now in charge of the Ukrainian Territorial Defense Forces unmanned systems capability. Extraordinary responsibility. Yeah, I mean, you've only got to watch some of the stuff that's going on almost on uh, a daily basis on the front line to realize the important role that Colonel Hazan plays. And he also, as James will remember, we can't, we, you know, I, we've said before, we can't talk too much about it, but he did let us into one or two secrets, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was thinking that after the recording stopped, there was a lot of off-record chat, and I was thinking this is all would be gold dust for the podcast, but obviously we can't record it for security purposes, but it's such an eye-opener to the capabilities that his unit has, and He's a very remarkable guy, especially speaking to him at length and having sort of a casual chat with him afterwards. He's a very, very interesting guy. We had some great chats about uh, using Russian language and how people in Ukraine nowadays strain away from Russian as a language, whereas uh, before the war, or particularly the full-scale invasion, a lot of the population did speak Russian. 
and he sort of confirmed my suspicions on that and I thought that he, he said well yes everybody can speak Russian but nobody chooses to anymore nobody chooses to listen to Russian music nobody chooses to read Russian literature and uh, I think that's part of the whole nation building that's going on in Ukraine part of the whole narrative of the war that's now sort of created a solid nation in Ukraine as a result of this war the exact opposite of what Putin was trying to uh, create Quick aside to uh, the chat with Colonel Hazan. We on the way there in the taxi. It was rather a long journey, actually. We were way out in the suburbs of Kiev. But anyway, on the way out there in the taxi, the taxi driver seemed incredibly well informed. He said, you do realize that missile that you recently witnessed being shot down was a Kinzhal. It was a, a hypersonic. And we said, no, we didn't. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not experienced enough to identify incoming uh, we've just arrived in theatre, so to speak. And he said, no, 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 absolutely it was. But it, it was a good sign, frankly, I mean, to make the broader point that if you are planning to come to Kiev, and I'm sure most people listening aren't in the foreseeable future, but if you are, it's probably one of the safest places to be because apart from Zhezhov, as we mentioned, which has a lot of Patriot batteries, this is incredibly well defended. And the one other little uh, snippet we got from the taxi driver is that the anti-missile missile may have been French and that's the first I've heard of it because we've heard of Patriots and we've heard of the Iris system from Germany but we haven't heard about the French system but he said he said there's definitely one here it's very sophisticated and it might have been used so that was another little snippet that was quite interesting. The boys went off to meet again people that uh, we've uh, spoken to other podcasts the Halo Trust which do brilliant work around the world have done for couple of decades now actually demining a huge blight on the face of the earth literally they'll talk about that in another episode or that will be illuminated uh, at greater length elsewhere but later that day we had a meeting in kiev up in a wonderful location actually and on the 12th floor of a hotel with an incredible panoramic view of the city with a bunch of fascinating people introduced to us by our friend joe uh, and among them was a a guy called Taras, who is a has been very active in, in trying to basically clean up Ukraine uh, since the bad old days, and he's been doing that with some success. Um, again, we got this sense of you know a lot of dynamic people around, aren't there? Don't you think? Yeah, we there was a wonderful group that Joe had got together in very short order. There was an American who um, we weren't entirely sure what she did, and she told me that she worked for the. Uh, American government in some capacity and that come September she would be able to speak more freely so make of that what you will but that was a kind of sort of tone of the evening and it was wonderful mixture of people all of whom I mean I think the great thing to say about all of these meetings is that not everyone agrees on you know what's going to happen in the future for Ukraine and the way to move ahead and and even if the war is going to be won in the way that uh, a lot of the more strident Ukrainians would like it to be but they're all definitely on side in some shape or form. And it is quite wonderful, I think, to feel the Ukrainian spirit, as Patrick's already referenced, but also the spirit that foreigners can bring to the party too. And we'd like to think in a very, very small way, we added a tiny bit of that in the brief time we were there. Okay, we'll take a short break now before we continue our reflections on our trip to Ukraine. Welcome back. We had a rather moving visit on Sunday to a little enterprise out on the outskirts of Kiev 
called Positive, which is basically as a rehabilitation center for kids who've been on the receiving end of the war. You know, they've suffered some pretty horrendous experiences being shelled and uh, in places where the Russians took over and basically seen lots of stuff that kids there should never ever anyone indeed should ever be exposed to and great work being done by a wonderful lady called Roxana who's a child psychologist but again you know there's this sort of sense that this is not this is something we can build on this this is something that actually looks like a tragedy but we can turn it around we can make something positive out of it one of the things that I was really struck by there all was the way that Roxana said that often it was the children who were actually kind of strengthening, comforting their parents. So it's pretty kind of uplifting couple of hours we had there. Yes, and Oksana was only half the story. Her husband um, was a surgeon pediatrician in the local children's hospital. And she told a very moving story about how he had been operating on a child that had almost lost its life, but and then called her in, sort of a husband and wife team, to work through the sort of psychological damage. So, I mean, we all know, of course, I think instinctively that war traumatizes people, but you often forget the casualties among children. And any of us who are parents, including uh, Patrick and I, James, not quite yet, I think it affects you a little bit more, I have to say, going to a place like that and, and chatting to some of the children. Having said that, as Patrick's pointed out, it was rather lovely to think that there was a kind of strength in their uh, suffering and that they at least had been convinced by Oksana that a lot of good could come out of this and they could actually help their parents and you could see them oscillating frankly when we were chatting to them between extreme upset as we asked them questions and they were having to relive some of what they've been through but also the pride and determination that they were going to be part of Ukraine's future. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that struck me is how young some of these children were. And I was thinking to myself, some of them are so young that their recent memories are entirely filled by memories of this war. Some of them would only really remember life in wartime. And that's, that's not a life for a child to live, really, is it? There we moved on to a historic site. Saul is very much... A historian, I still, I'm afraid, have these old journalistic impulses which I can't get over. So I was very keen to visit Bucha, the scene of a you know, horrible massacre at the beginning of the war. And indeed, it was very much worthwhile doing. Our wonderful translator and fixer, Taras, took us to meet a relation of his uh, who happened to be uh, you know, resident in Bucha and a very religious man, deeply Christian man, who took it upon himself to to bury many of the victims of the uh, Russian atrocities. And so we spent a kind of, how would you put it, Saul? It was a it was a kind of enlightening, it was quite a sort of grim testimony he was giving. But again, you know, some sort of sense, again, that, um, you know, some good could come out of all this. I felt, I have to say, that we were witness to, um, you know, his testimony as to the horror that had been inflicted on that particular community. And he did remind us, actually, that a lot of the details that had been put out by the Russians after the event, hardly anyone killed, nobody's lying in the street, all uh, a, a propaganda effect by the Russians. Uh, and he also made the interesting point that the Russians are very good at propaganda. And one of the reasons why they have been able to manipulate the West in our calculation is for that very reason. But 
he was weather beaten. He just looked like a man of the soil to me. I know he lives in Bucha, which as we describe, and it's a concrete jungle. But in reality, here was a man who was, he looked to me, I don't know what you felt, Patrick, like a sort of classic Ukrainian peasant, hardy, stoical, soulful, and as Patrick's mentioned, Christian too. He thinks, uh, and why wouldn't he, that that got him through it. But he did face some absolutely appalling moments, both to his own personal safety and the things he witnessed. And, and I don't know about anyone listening to his testimony, but when we were there, you know, you could see the expression on his face. And he moved from, again, a bit like the children, from extreme emotion from what he'd gone through to also a kind of toughness that you can see in the Ukrainians. Yeah. I mean, as an old journalist of many years standing, I often used to feel, you know, have we got the right to ask people to revisit these dark places and their memories? And, you know, occasionally feel slightly guilty when people did begin to kind of emote. And, but I, I think that, you know, people do welcome an opportunity to actually get these things off their chest if they trust the person they're talking to. And they felt they could trust us, I think, with good reason. But just getting back to the actual look of Butcher, I think what you see there is a kind of example of how successful Ukraine's been, or indeed the entire region, if you come through Poland, you see the same thing, of these what were once you know, pretty much peasant sort of societies, nice little cottages, I suppose we call them in England, surrounded with a little vegetable patch, which you'd probably keep a few geese or chickens, rabbits or whatever on. And so you're going from a sort of in a ruralized society to a, a postmodern society, almost without kind of any intervening phase. And that's very much what you see at Bucha. So Bucha is a sort of dormitory town, satellite town of, of Kiev, with, with the modern sitting right next door to something that Tolstoy would probably recognize. We should mention actually on the way there, and James uh, is going to fill us in a little bit of detail on this, I hope, that we saw the site of one of the, one of the sort of great moments, at least as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, in terms of the siege of Kyiv, where they repelled a, an armored attack by the Russians and knocked out a whole kind of line of armor. And Taras took us there to see it. They are, you know, all the vehicles that were knocked out aren't, aren't still there, but quite a few were. And so we indulged ourselves for a little bit of time, I think it's fair to say, by stopping, having a look, taking some photographs, just kind of drinking in the reality of what had been only 18 months ago. James, what was your impression? Yeah, I was shocked at how damaged this armoured column was. It, it wasn't just these vehicles had been knocked out. You know, the turret had been thrown up on the tanks and the barrel of the turret had been buried into the soil. And even the armoured personnel carriers, they were just completely obliterated. And it was just left there. I was surprised that they'd just been left there and just taken off to the side of the road. And... I guess it's sort of almost like a reminder to those who live there what, what was there before, but also maybe a source of pride for them that they stopped them there. They didn't get any further than that. That was as far as they managed to get. There's a bit of a precedent for that, or I think it's something that people do to remind their populations of, what, uh, of, of a struggle. If, if you drive from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem up into the hills from the sea, at the side of the road you'll see these uh, rusted armoured cars which are left over from the 1948 war so they're very very old now but so that is a kind of form of monument which dates back at least to then and indeed there were kind of 
First World War tanks, after the First World War, tanks were put in the squares of many towns and villages in, in Britain to remind them of, of that event. Well, we finished that day uh, talking, just in a cafe, talking to a, a couple we just came across there, uh, Lydia and Dennis. And this was, turned out to be a bit of a snapshot of, I suppose, where Ukraine's future lies, you could say. Lydia was working in Ukraine for a big multinational. She's got went to Britain, is in Britain at the moment, to perfect her skills, but with the full intention of returning to Ukraine to you know, apply what she's learnt to the future of the country. Dennis has remained in Ukraine, but when we talked to him, we got a, a bit of a kind of um, corrective to all the positive stuff we've been hearing left, right and centre. And it was quite refreshing to hear it, I have to, to say. He said there's still a hell of a lot of corruption in this country. And he said you may put in these new mayors who were kind of, you know, meant to be the new brooms. You get politicians like the leader of the country, tremendously refreshing figure. But there's still this kind of institutional corruption, perhaps left over from the Soviet times, where people just are carrying on the same old way, taking backhanders, cutting corners. If you've got the money, your life is much easier than if you haven't got the money and if you're prepared to offer the bribe and take the bribe. This, he, he said there's still a hell of a lot of that around, which seemed to be confirmed by some news which broke while we were there, which was that President Zelensky had fired every single one of the regional recruiting chiefs for corruption, pure and simple. And that boils down to the fact that they were, they or the people around them were taking backhanders for giving rich kids, rich boys and rich young men deferrals or exemptions from military service in return for bribes. That's pretty shocking in the middle of a war of this nature. And so, you know, that was a bit of a, you know, it did slightly sort of dampen spirits for a moment. But he said, when we asked him the question, does that mean you think that the war should be brought to an end with some sort of negotiation? Both Dennis and his friend Lydia were vehement no, absolutely not. They, they, they were kind of, they stiffened, didn't they? So they were kind of angry at the suggestion. No, we have to, we have to defeat the Russians. And I, coming away from this, I share that view. Well, it's now been over a month, hasn't it, Saul? And it does feel quite remote. Something that strikes me is that there is a very definite need for our podcast because uh, talking to people who I thought were kind of quite informed and quite engaged in what's going on there, I'm quite taken aback really at, at how little they really know. And so I think, you know, we are kind of duty bound really to try and enlighten people as much as we possibly can about what is happening there. I, I see it very much as a struggle that's much broader than just simply about Ukraine and, and Russia. It's about all of us. It's about anyone who cares about civilization and democracy. And I think you probably feel the same, don't you? I do. And I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, we all feel, uh, we said it at the time, we certainly feel now in retrospect that it was not only worthwhile going to Ukraine, but also quite important because we'd been talking about the war for over a year, um, but at second hand. And there's nothing like, as you've said many times, Patrick, 
there's nothing like actually getting your boots on the ground and, and getting a sense of the temperature yourself. The reaction from listeners has also been really positive. There's been no question that the Wednesday episodes we've been putting out, which of course has been the various interviews and discussions and reminiscences of our time in Ukraine, have gone down really well, particularly uh, last week's when, of course, we visited that child psychologist and the work, wonderful work she was doing and also Butcher. So, it was worth going. We are hoping and planning and more of this anon to go again in the not too distant future. But it's also worth saying that as we will be discussing on Friday, things do seem to be moving towards some kind of change in tempo in the war. So exactly how long ahead into the future we'll be reporting, we don't know, but we've said many times we'll stay there until the conclusion. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Do join us on Friday for the latest news, including this dramatic Ukrainian strike on the Russian Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol. Goodbye. Goodbye.